This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hi, everyone. Uh, this is the 3D Pod, and my name is Joris Peels. And as always, I'm here uh, with Maxwell Bogue. Hey, everyone. And yeah, today we have something really special because we're doing our first collab. Yes, yes, we're hip, <laughs> just like the kids, kid ch- children's. Uh, <laughs> so we're hip uh, with a collab with another podcast with another 3D printing consultant. Uh, and that's with Mike Vasquez. Mike Va- Vasquez is his own Three Degrees uh, podcast. And he's also a 3D printing consultant. He's got a degree from Loughborough, a degree from MIT, and he's doing a lot of uh, yeah optimization and consulting on, on on 3D printing processes and stuff. So yeah, really uh, looking forward to, to to talking to him today. So welcome uh, to our podcast, Mike. Thank you very much. I'm excited for the conversation today. Yeah, and and also I, I guess we're going to be in your podcast as well. So that's going to be uh, quite quite new for us as well. For sure, cross. Yeah. Cross contamination. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Something like that. <laughs> so, so, um, yeah, I'm just a little, so Mike, tell us a little bit about what you, about, uh, well, how'd you get involved with 3D printing first off? Sure. So my kind of career in engineering really started, um, because I like to play baseball. So I played baseball growing up in kind of elementary school, high school, into college. And one of the things that always excited me was that really interested me was that every year it seemed that the baseball bat companies would come out with a new type of baseball bat that was made of a different material one year it was graphite one year it was aluminum one year it was carbon fiber and i thought to myself like wow like somewhere someone's job is to come up with new materials for baseball bats and i thought that was awesome i'm like i want to do that job and so in kind of high school and into college i got really into material science and was still playing baseball and said like, Hey, like, can I explore this a little bit more? And ended up when I was at MIT finding this lab called the sports innovation lab that was doing research work for sporting goods companies um, like Rawlings and um, bike companies because we had a wind tunnel access and things like that. And it was really my first experience in terms of hands-on practical engineering applied to materials. And so we designed padding and things like that. And as I got further into that, some of our projects started to involve 3D printing. And one of the things I really learned quickly was that, and this is the kind of early 2000s timeframe. So 3D printing is certainly wasn't as mainstream as it is now. And the access to the machines wasn't as widespread. And for the most part at the time, it was really early adopters using it. So aerospace, medical to some extent, and and a lot for prototyping. But what I quickly learned was that 3D printing or one of the other industries that was heavily involved was the sporting goods industry because they have a lot of the same requirements that an aerospace company has. They want to make things lighter, faster, stronger, use the same type of materials. But the really good thing is they don't have the regulation. And so they're willing to push the envelope and try these new technologies. And so um, kind of got involved with some footwear companies like New Balance doing some 3D printing work and then um, ended up going across the pond to Loughborough University in the UK, just north of London, to do a PhD focused on materials development, but that was partnered with both EOS and Burton Snowboards. 
So I was doing a lot of work in developing elastomer materials for uh, 3D printing um, powders and kind of developing that way. And so kind of getting into the industry from uh, a slightly different perspective than, than many others. So that's kind of how I got my start. Yeah, and, and now you're doing like three degrees and what do you guys do at three degrees uh, most of the time? Yeah. So I started three degrees in 2012. So almost eight years ago now. And this was right after I had finished my PhD. I'd done a lot of hands-on work and running machines and a lot of different technologies. And when I came back to the US, realized that, hey, like this is an interesting technology. It's got a lot of challenges and question marks for companies that are see articles about it and see other competitors using it. And, and there's really at the time there were very limited options to kind of getting a third party kind of technology engineering focused approach to evaluating the materials, the processes, how do you scale it? What are the business applications? And, and so um, with three degrees, kind of the idea was we can serve as a, a partner for organizations that are going through that process and both understanding kind of production technology and, and scaling it to, to large scale systems and, and facilities. So really what we do is we focus on kind of working with organizations, both materials companies and users and OEMs to help them understand the technology and move it into a production mindset. And so we've worked with about 60 companies, a wide range of industries to, to help them do that and um, have had a lot of fun and learned certainly quite a bit in in exploring that. So, I mean, I, <laughs> I didn't know the first thing about running a business when I first started and there's probably a lot of mistakes that I made going along the way. So it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows, but it was, um, certainly for me, um, being an engineer kind of lifeline engineer was a steep learning curve to learn, to, to sell to different companies and, and talk to big companies who are, and trying to navigate who's the, the right person. So for me, it's been very rewarding and, and, and growing in a lot of different ways, both personally and professionally. Okay, that sounds like a lot of fun. What's like, like if you look at like the, of course, you'll take on a bunch of different projects, a bunch of different type of things. Like, what's your favorite type of project to do? I really like the material side of things, and so one of the things that is really exciting from my perspective is being able to kind of match the right material or modify material to the right application. And we've done quite a bit of work in the sporting goods realm, um, uh, both in, in footwear as well as um, some other applications like cycling and, and things like that. So I really enjoy kind of the hunt, so to speak, of finding the right application that fits the right technology, that fits the right price point. Because I mean, as you guys know, it's one of those things where it's clearly not a one size fits all technology. There's a lot of hype. There's a lot of BS in the market. Oh, um, <laughs> and, and so from my perspective, like I'm the first one to say like 3d printing is not the right application for, for this. And, <laughs> but at the same time, there are, there are useful at, um, applications for, for the technology. If people are willing to be a little bit not riskier, but more open-minded on, kind of the timelines, 
some of the costs and the realities of where the technology is. So I was just saying, do you have a favorite material though? And that like as a material scientist, you know, do you have a preference towards metals or plastics or any of the above or specific material? I know Joris loves PCL, for example. Uh, I don't. I mean, I've never been asked what's my favorite material. Um, I guess my one of the uh, the first things I ever did, kind of early on, and probably has a so uh, a little soft soft spot in my heart is I did a lot of work in developing elastomer materials for mm-hmm. powder technologies like MJF and yeah. and SLS. So some of the early TPU materials yeah. um, that we collaborated on was like ten years ago at at Burton are now just getting into the market, which is <laughs> exciting. Um, but uh, but it's it just opens up some different applications and and they're still growing in, in that space. I think there's a lot of runway, but it's still pretty early and there's a lot of differences between that and say like a PA 12 that is, is still the dominant player. I, I love like TPU for, for, uh, yeah, for centering. I think, I think it's a really, really exciting material. I think, I think, uh, yeah, like when we saw that happening, it was, well, there's a bunch of people working on it, of course, like Lehman and Vosch, I think were the first to come up with it. And then uh, who else? A bunch of people come up with it, but 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 generally, like no one's really well. It's it's just a nascent material, as in like it could be used in production. It could be used in millions of parts. Do you really think it's it has that kind of potential? I think it's I don't know millions of parts. I think there's certainly good applications for it. Um, what we were looking at was, and I think what's really exciting is the ability to. to um, kind of change the hardness of durometer within yeah. a build. Um, so you have an, a lot of potential to, depending on how much you center it and what the energy parameters are, you have have some ability to make some of those um, almost multi-material or almost gradient type of materials. And so I think the simple applications, people always think of like gaskets or little kind of- Living hinges. Uh, living hinges, I mean, padding for shoes or protective equipment. I think those are quite interesting. They're still pretty heavy, <laughs> even like with with some of the designs, if you've ever seen some of the 3D printed elastomers, I think my main gripe with them is they're still a little bit he- on the heavy side. Um, but I think with design and with different chemistries and different approaches, you can um, make it a little bit more efficient. And certainly there's there's also some speaking more on the the polymer or the powder side there's some excitement in the fact that you get at least some of the early elastomers and tpus that we were working on the ability to not have to recycle as much or kind of blend back into the sls process or mjf process which is still one of those things that if you're throwing away 40 30 40 percent of the material at the end of the day and can't reuse it all there's there's some cost to that so um the TPUs don't have some of the condensation chemistry that the nylons do when you hold it at the the elevated temperatures and MJF and and laser sintering. I got a suit jacket made out of TPU. Yeah? Yeah, I made a suit jacket out of TPU. Okay. Uh, My wallet and phone case. Yeah. Okay, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I worked to a CES one year. Okay, okay. Well, you need to watch over the fu- with the the fumes, huh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's too late, but. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's it's not great. It's not great. But okay, I, I love TPO. I think I think I think for one thing you highlighted, I think padding. I love the idea of like customized, like for example, like uh, the uh, the headrest of a car or a customized backpack backing or like for glove or for gloves, like kind of customized like kind of inserts for gloves and things. I love it for those kind of things. Do you, do you see like this mass customization being enabled by such a material like TPU or do you think that's a bit too far off at the moment? Yeah, I don't see any reason why it can't be. I still think just generally it's not as widespread of a material. It's probably on kind of that second tier of material being used in, in the certainly the plastic space. But I think it's it, it's got a lot of potential. I think what the unknown that are still out there, we're actually doing a lot of work with this is kind of what are the long-term what do the long-term properties look like? If you, I mean, we know like SLA and some other materials, like if you leave them in the sun too long, even if they're duly cured, like you're going to get degradation. Um, similarly with this, like some of the long-term um, fatigue or surface finish, like what are the long-term implications of that? And, and that goes back to what you need it to be. Is it something that you're going to take out of a box every three years and you're going to use, or is it going to be kind of, regularly use on a car dashboard for three, four, seven, eight, nine years, and it's going to go through temperature and um, differences. So I think there, there are going to be certainly no shortages of applications for it. Um, it's again, just coming back for like, what's that second layer of, of material characterization that, that you have to do to understand it. And that's still something that pretty limited in the industry. I mean, there's a little bit of literature on long-term effects and, but even the standard data sheets that you would get from many of the vendors, like they'll give you tensile properties. They'll give you some short hardness, but that's at one printing parameter in ideal conditions. You don't know what conditions it was tested in necessarily if, and, and, and does that align to what your, your end use application is. So I think it, yeah. there's a potential there. It's just a matter of kind of you, um, curate a little bit more to say, okay, this is good for these types of environments and temperatures and, and so forth. So. Uh, I think, I think it's, I think it's a good point. I mean, I think, you know, everybody's well, it's well known about SLA getting brittle and, and, and stuff like that and UV degradation and stuff like that. But for example, it's less well known. I think is just, for example, standard PA parts, they degrade as well. Uh, especially when they're put under uh, repeated stress and like everybody's always like, you guys mentioned live hinges and things like that and hinges. I kind of shy away from that kind of use in a, in a, in a long-term scenario because I'm uh, I think that the part will degrade, and that's in the material we understand the best, like PA12. And then I think it's a good point that, that in like more exotic or for us more exotic stuff like TPU, it's kind of weird calling TPU exotic, but um, <laughs> that, 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 that in that kind of a scenario, you have to really you know there's one thing having material on Tuesday, and there's one thing having material like five years later. I think that's a really good point. Right, and it's still kind of a question mark of like, what sorts of testing do you need to do with that material? I mean, there's a lot of historical literature on injection molding and things like that, but um, you're going through different temperature, temperature regimes when you put it through SLS or MJF or other printing technologies, and um, that's gonna impact it. How many parts are in the build? What state was the powder in? What was the post-processing that you did to, to the parts? And, and then where's, where's it going? I think the, the other thing to remember about kind of TPUs and, and elastomers in general is that they have a different kind of glass transition than a PA12, which is certainly lower. And so you get closer to that state where it's 
not quite, I mean, you're getting into some movement of the molecules and, and some of the stability breaking down at lower temperatures. And so it's, you have to just be careful about that, especially in, in applications that, that might be experience elevated temperatures. But from, from our experience, I mean, engineers and the folks in kind of on the end user side, for the most part, it's a kind of double-edged sword. Like, um, they generally know what they want in terms of specification, but, um, there are also a lot of cases where there's a specification written for an existing manufactured part. And if you were to ask the engineer why they needed, uh, glass transition temperature or melting temperature above 120 degrees, they probably couldn't tell you if in, um, if it's an older part or if it's a more legacy part. And so there, I think there are some, some ways that people could, um, be more open to materials if, if the database and if the, the, the testing is, is more expanded on, on the long-term properties. The, the tooled parts have the same kind of limitations in some way, like they're just a different number, but a living hinge on a injection molded part is still spec'd for something, you know, 10,000, 100,000 moves before it breaks. So it's yeah, same, absolutely. same thing, different, different material. So yeah, you get different properties. Right. And I think people are trying to become more comfortable with, I mean, all materials will fail after a given point in time or after certain stresses or temperatures or chemicals that are kind of leached into them. It's more kind of understanding what is the failure going to be and how long. And so I think it's okay to have a material fail. It's just, okay, was it an expected failure or is it something that we can mitigate or engineer around or have an appreciation that like, hey, if it's if you're a shoe and it's going to degrade over a year, okay, like most people replace their shoes in about a year. So I mean, it's not the end of the world, right? There's some level of either consumer or industrial expectation that there's a replacement cost to these. So um, it's just more understanding what that might look like. Yeah, but I, th I think we do have a problem in our market that, well, for example, like the Young's modules degrading on sintered parts or stuff like that, you know, is unexpected, right? It, it doesn't really belong in, it isn't calculated in the same way uh, or the behavior is not the same as, as a molded part. So so they, they wouldn't be expected. It, it isn't like a linear thing that'll last completely 10,000 times before breaking because that's what they're used to doing, right? So the test has to be different, right? And and that I think is going to be a really big problem if you come to people and say, "Hey, we have new exotic testing," <laughs> right? and then they're like, "Well, wait a minute, you have new standards, new everything. You're making this up as you go along," and we kind of are, you know. <laughs> so I think, yeah, I, think, I do think it's a, it's a it's an important point, and I think there's also a problem. There has been a problem since the beginning of our industry where people seem to think that because we can make a shape, it's automatically functional. And a ton of the shapes we showcased to the public and to the media and also just uh, on trade shows and things are not functional parts. And, and people have this idea that they're functional. And there's a huge gulf between being able to make something and being able to make that a functioning shape. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a ton of work to, to go through um, the, the entire end-to-end -end kind of production readiness process of, of getting a part ready for for actual use. I mean, you've got, I mean, design is a whole can of worms that you have to think about putting it in, selecting the right materials, doing all the material testing before, during, and after and post-processing inspection. And, and I think that's, uh, it's one of those things that it's, 
underestimated how difficult that can be. And, and it changes depending on the application. If it's a consumer product, maybe there's a little bit less where you're focusing more on the appearance, right? Versus in some more industrial settings where mechanical strength is required or long-term stability, um, that changes the focus of, of all the testing that you're doing. So I think there's, you're exactly right, is that the, the functional form or the, just the, the shape of the part is really what 10% of the story. Probably it's like the iceberg, like you only see 10%, but all the stuff right. that's behind it is, is really what kind of pushes it into a position to, to make it an effective manufacturing part. And, and all that, I mean, at the end of the day, like that costs, costs money, it costs engineering time, it costs testing time, it costs development time and machines and, materials and and all that so um, sometimes i would say that like some of the cost models that you see like okay we can get like in an ideal world we can cut 30 percent weight off and it saves us this amount of fuel um, there's a high cost up front for the development of that <laughs> getting it to either a manufacturability manufacturing ready part or um something that could go into production it's generally i think uh that's interesting I mean, are you also I mean, what, one material i'm also like super excited about is is polypro polypropylene like for fdm i loved it i think it's clarion that came up with it first if i'm not mistaken maybe somebody else had it. i'm not sure but clarion for fdm had it and clarion which is now dsm which is now covestro uh, <laughs> um and they had it and then now also uh i think i think uh, mjf uh or hp has it as well and I'm really excited about that because I know there's so much polypropylene and also I love the functionality of it, the softness of it. I love it for like sports equipment to get. Are you as excited or you don't as excited about polypropylene? I think I'm excited from a different perspective. Well, I think the potential for using, I would say more conventional plastics is exciting. Certainly MJF and SLS and an FDM to an extent have process limitations that there's a reason PA12 is so widespread is because it works well in the process. But if like PA12 is a specialty material, if you, I mean, if I know Ivonic makes tons of it and Arkema and things make probably tens of tons or hundreds of tons at this point of, of material every year. But in the broad scheme of things, like it's, you ask a, a general plastic supplier, do they have a lot of customers using PA12 or, um, or do they make a lot of it? And they're like, no, like it may go into dishwashers, um, I think is the main use of PA12, but it's very special. Makeup too. additive. It's like right. the, the stuff that makes your, your makeup kind of creamy. Yeah. Lipstick. Yeah. There's a lot of it in lipstick. And uh, powder and so, coating. Right. Right. But at the end of the day, it's not a huge. No, like, yeah, compared to it, polypropylene like, or HCP or whatever. Right. And so I think like more broadly, I mean, yes, I think there'll be nice applications like on the end use side, but. I think what I'm interested to see how it plays out is, okay, can you get more, I'd say, kind of generic polymers into these systems and, and start messing with some of the um, costing models of what exists in the market today, right? I think the what we're seeing is the material costs for certainly the powders really hasn't changed in 10 years. <laughs> I mean, at, if you buy at volume and things like that, it changes a little bit, but you're still getting these markups where you look at an injection molding grade of 
really any material. It's going to be under, most likely it's going to be under $3. I think nylon 12 is like $8, like as a pellet, somewhere around that um, that range. But once you start getting into how much does it cost to to powder, like put it into a powder form or kind of get it ready to for SLS, like the markups that these manufacturers are getting on that is still pretty significant and yes i'm not saying like they shouldn't make a profit and like that there are is know-how in the process of kind of producing a a polymer just give you an idea like yeah the pricing is like it's about 30 bucks per kilo for volume if you're doing it directly yourself uh if you're doing it from from like directly or indirectly at at semi-volume like your service vr guy you're going to be paying anywhere from 65 to 95 dollars a kilo for sure for the stuff that's around 10 12 yeah, uh, and then effectively you're going to pay about you know about anywhere from thirty to fifty percent more because you're going to toss that uh, away. So yeah, you're looking at like one hundred twenty, one hundred and fifty dollars a kilo per powder. What is kind of developing with these new materials is yes, I think some of the like the functionality is exciting that you can kind of open up some of the these different ranges. But like the and this is my opinion, but like. The reason you see more materials is because the polymer, conventional polymer injection molding companies of the world see what the companies like Avonic and others have gotten in terms of margins for these types of materials. So, I mean, that's a pretty good margin for, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so do they, so I think they're, I mean, my sense they is- They DuPont and these guys are like, I want to get in on this. <laughs> right. But the challenge yeah. is they want to do it for these conventional materials, right? Like a- maybe like a polypropylene or TPUs and things like that, where it's so cheap to get that conventionally that like, that's also one of the reasons, not just functionality that they're used. It's like, because they're cheap. Right. And if the assumption is for these big materials players to get into the market is that they can start, they're building their business models off of getting these huge margins. I don't know how long that's going to last or kind of expand into kind of new applications if like the cost modeling just gets harder with a really expensive um, generic material like a polypropylene or others. Um, I'm using polypropylene as a, as an example, but there are other kind of um, materials that probably fit, fit into this category. Um, like it's harder to make an apples to apples justification for switching over from a 3d printed to a 3d printed component from injection molded. Whereas it's a little bit easier with injection with, um, PA 12, because you get like, it's already expensive from a, a pellet form. So the injection molding cost is a little bit like the gap isn't as big, even though there's a big margin gap. But I think if you get into some of these other materials that conventionally are very cheap and now they're like at the same markup range, I think you're going to have some issues. I don't, know, I don't know about that though, because like, I think I understand the point, but I think ultimately it depends on the, the, the functionality that you can achieve, right? So the ultimate business case of an ultem or a peak part for a satellite or like a RF transmitter on an airplane or something, you know, that business case is going to be much better. You know what I mean? Sure. And then we're yeah, talking I mean, about so like, expensive that yeah, I don't care what they make it out of. They don't care. It's not like these no. guys, like Raytheon is not like, hey, you're only paying $6 a kilo for this stuff. They don't care. Oh yeah, they want to have like, like the best like uh, antenna for uh for 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 an aircraft, you know? Sure. So I, I agree with you on that point. Like Peak and Altem. I mean, th- I would put those in slightly different categories, right? Like those are the highest performing material, like thermoplastics that you have, and so they're they're expensive, whatever route you go. I think more what what I'm thinking of is kind of the the lower end materials that are 
the PPs and maybe PET and things like that that are are fairly kind of generic. At yeah, this no, point. but but I'm saying that there is never a business case for a one-on-one replacement of of, of oh, three sure. parts. Sure. There's never so so the only reason it's going to work is if we make like a TPU backing for a backpack that's uh, I don't know individualized for your kid, right? So it's exactly the size of his back, and he's come more comfortable and has less back problem. You know, that's the only way that we can make this happen. It's not like they're going to say, like, now with 3D printed backs, we're going to pay 20 times as much, you know? I don't know. I've had so much of these struggles with these base economics of the thing, but I'm like, let's look at the user value of the, the ultimate customer. How do we help you sell more? How do we help you? So that's what I meant, like, not only with these, like, high-end engineering materials, like Peak and stuff, but also just, like, what does the customer want? And let's make that 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 customer happy. And then everything else will fall into place. The, you remember the pump things we had on shoes? Oh God, this is like going to age everyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a, I think it was the 90s, right? Or the eight, yeah, late 80s, sorry. early 90s. Yeah. A bunch of kids are going to have to Google that. Like, what? what pump on a shoe? <laughs> I mean, that, that, was, that was like, it was nonsensical. It didn't make sense. It was much more expensive for them to do. It added many more it parts marketing. and a lot of complexity. It was pure marketing. Yeah, but it did really well. I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm saying, and that's the kind of stuff we should be selling to people, not like, it's 3D printed, so it's awesome. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think of value. Yes, and ultimately, the customer probably doesn't care how it's manufactured, right? Like, do you really care like what soldering technology was used on your phone, right? Nobody cares, right? Like, it's the only the engineers, only us (laughs) engineers care about what soldering technology. Hand laid Ultim sheets or hand laid Capital. Exactly. So I think it's it's a little bit overhyped in that sense of like. yeah. does it need to be 3d printed and and ultimately who cares right like does mm-hmm. it what value does it give me as the customer yeah, but that to me is like the economic thing that's that so i'm not like you know the conversion pricing of that kind of thing is maybe uh, can we help them sell more backpacks and i think i think we've never as an industry we've always kind of let, let the customer lead us and i think that's led to some brilliant things i mean we wouldn't be doing turbine we wouldn't be doing turbines for tanks and we wouldn't be doing turbines for for jet engines and propeller engines if it weren't for some crazy customers you know and and definitely the hearing aid thing and also the the guy the italian guys all the italian guys that made the whole the hip implant thing possible that was just insane from their point of view how long it took for them to make this happen um so we have been led by customers to success but a lot of things i see customers kind of leading us into nowheresville you know sure sure yeah that's that's fair. I think there's a lot of exploration of the technology and innovation for the sake of like our comp- our competitor is doing it, or we see that yeah. this VP wants to invest in 3D printing, and so people go and buy a machine. <laughs> so yeah, okay. there's still a lot it's of just that. Just corner. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I a, we had a, there's this like there's this campus kind of set up, and, and a colleague of mine went there, and he said. They're making door stops. So they were making, they had like SLM, like uh, machines, like our, our pattern bed fusion machines. And they were literally making door stops and gadgets and desk gadgets. And that's mainly what they were doing. There was like one build, <laughs> like a 290 or something. That sounds like, be the like perfect a perfect application ornament. for a 12, <laughs> yeah, exactly. 12 laser system, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, he just came back like shell shocked. He's like, um, what? <laughs> yeah. And also, you said earlier about this requirements thing. I've had things where I'm like, you know, and about quizzing the customer on the requirements. I think that was a really good point as well, because I've had things where I'm like, you, the only thing I know from your requirements is you don't know what you're talking about. Right. <laughs> it was like, or, or they're just like, they're just like, 
we had um how do I anonymize this a little bit? We had, we're looking at these <laughs> customer requirements, and they were so ambitious. At first, we were like, "Oh my god, this is like the visionary stuff we need," you know, big company, big money, big vision, you know. And then we started looking at like kind of like just some of the underlying things, and it was like, "But that won't work," <laughs> you know? as in it didn't really it didn't internally make sense, you know. And the and then the the, the thing just didn't like you know it didn't match up. The, you know, the the volume they wanted, the throughput they wanted, is so high that then the material reservoir they had was like, you know, not commensurate with that. So they didn't even think it through. So I'm thinking a lot of people are just, you know, we need to admit to each other that we're just making this up as we go along, <laughs> you know? The flip side of that is I've seen kind of those, been in some of those similar conversations about the spec. And even if you can convince the, the engineer or team that you're working on, that the spec could be changed or updated or modified, the amount of inertia that it takes to do something like that is probably enough to cancel or severely delay a, a 3D printed project um, in in many cases from from our experience. We don't have an issue with that, but it's you'd rather find out about that earlier than than later. But right. to kind of recharacterize materials or even specify a new printing technology, it's it's a long effort, certainly depending on the industry. Just generally, I think we we're, were kind of also coming into a, a moment in the industry where it's like conventional that, okay, prices are going to come down for everything. We're going to have more competition and we're going to move to industrialization, right? And we're going to do some mass customization stuff for some industries or something like that. Generally, that's kind of like the feeling that people have. And, you know, desktop printers, I think most people think that at the moment it's not going to happen, although I'm more optimistic about this than I have been in, in years. But um, what are your... What, like apart from that, otherwise you're going to repeat the same story that everyone else says, <laughs> you know, but just generally, what are your feelings about just like how this industry is going to develop in the near term? Yeah. And I think there's certainly going to be opportunities when I've a couple things that I've noticed over the last two, three years is you've got certainly a push towards industrialization and that's a number of companies have invested tens of millions, 20 millions of dollars into kind of having these R and D future looking teams, identify applications for 3D printing. And and they've come up with a lot of interesting or handful of interesting applications. I think what I'm curious to see is how the supply chain around scaling production expands. And so what I mean by that is, I mean, even if you take conventional manufacturing right now, right? Some of the big automotive, aerospace companies, the brand names, I mean, they're really more assemblers than manufacturers, right? They probably make 20% of the parts that they assemble together and put on planes or cars or whatever. The 80% or so other parts, like they're getting in from their supply chain. And I think the there's this challenge right now, if I'm a existing supply chain member of some of these big companies that are in, you've seen invest in 3D printing and they're starting to come out with parts like what's what place do they have in in the market do they need to transfer over from some of their conventional manufacturing get in additive production capability what do they invest in I mean, it's a big investment usually for these small medium-sized manufacturers um, is that where kind of is is the production flow going to go towards them or and and what does that evolve as that's where i've been we've had a lot of conversations on on our podcast and a lot of the work that we're doing now is like what what does that landscape look like for the small and medium-sized manufacturer when it comes to 3d printing because you hear the the sexy press releases are from 
the brand names, right? Like in, in the industry, the people that everyone knows who Ford is or Boeing or whoever it may be. Um, but a lot of the kind of work comes, at least in the US, um, comes from these small, medium-sized manufacturers. And I still think there's a pretty big gap of understanding and potential of where do they they fit in and is it does it go to the service bureaus that are have had some existing they're not really set up for production in many cases like that dynamic i think is is what i'm really interested in and, and we've done been doing some work on on the software side to help kind of get some of these small medium-sized companies ready for that piece as it spills over if we buy this hypothesis that it's going to expand which i think in general is going to but um i think it's um there's certainly challenges along that way. I think that's a great market to focus on just because there's so many of these businesses. And yeah, if we look at a company like Stryker or, or, or you know, the GEs and the Honeywells and the Raytheons of this world, they have the heft to do this, right? They can throw 200 engineers at it uh, or, or, or 200, 400 million at it. And they can take the time as well because it'll give them lasting benefit. But yeah, one of these small to medium businesses, or at least in an American context, small to medium businesses, um, which are much larger than other people's small to medium businesses. But, you know, these guys, do they have the heft to do this? They're going to want to have tools and training and, and, and how are they going to get the people and that kind of thing. So I think that's a really exciting market for you to focus on. Yeah, and I think it's, um, there's already a lot of kind of interesting stories there. And, and for the the most part, I mean, these are, are small, medium-sized companies, mom and pop, store like places that probably have less than 50 in most cases they have less than even 20 or 30 people but they're making a lot of good parts and they've done things a certain way what's been successful probably not as digital as like the um people like you think like everything's digital thread and manufacturing um yet but they they still get it done and, and so there's that other dynamic of there's the investment in the ma machines materials know-how understanding all that ramp up costs and then kind of what is the expectation as well on the digital side to kind of have part traceability and um tracking of, of those components and, and managing files so i think the to call it like the plumbing of additive manufacturing still it's a lot of stuff to to work on and definitely do mm. you definitely got a lot of a lot of, a lot of stuff to do there and what's your personal hope for three degrees where do you hope to be in a couple of years what do you would you want to be a really huge company or just a really fun one or they admired or what's what's the goal for the business Sure. I think kind of focus on, on two things now. One is we've just developed uh, a software tool called Trace, which with the focus of small, medium-sized companies to help them digitize a lot of their 3D printing workflow so that you have a uh, kind of a, a souped up database that allows you to input those, those key parameters at each step of the process. So we're excited about building that out. We're working with of an aeros small aerospace supplier right now and and Renishaw as well to, to to integrate some of that technology going forward so that's exciting to to build out and 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 to take the business to kind of a different level with um with some of the the software tools and the other piece is um we're hoping to to do a lot of work to kind of share some of the different career paths that are exist in in this space i mean like yourselves we think the industry while it has its um, ups and downs and hype I think at the end of the day I think there's a lot of exciting stuff and well-meaning people doing work to to propel manufacturing forward in the U.S. and and globally and I'd like to to help kind of push some of the next generation of, of people who may not know what's going on in that kind of 
white nondescript windowless building on the side of the highway and show them that like, Hey, like there's some pretty cool machines that go on inside there. And so that was one of the reasons I started the podcast was to, I've been fortunate to see a lot of this manufacturing across the country and, and kind of be hands-on with it and kind of give people a platform to share what stories, how they got into the the career, like what are sorts of technology they're doing, like what advice do they give? So kind of building that out. And and then this summer in, in Chicago, we're, we're helping with some local community organizations targeting kind of 18 to, to 24 year olds on the west side and south sides of Chicago who um, to kind of get them educated into what are 3D printing, what does a career in 3D printing look like? And so matching mm-hmm. them up with some mentors and some hands-on kind of experience with some production machines, some tours of, of major manufacturers that are using the technology in the area um, to kind of show like what, what the potential is. Cause I think still, if we, um, we live and breathe this industry every day. And so we know kind of what the nitpicky challenges are, but if from someone from the outside who still may think that manufacturing is a, a dirty job or kind of envision what it looks like. And if you watch some of the older movies from the, 60s, 70s, and 80s, kind of what what manufacturing is portrayed, and I think that really hasn't changed. And so, showing people what what the potential is and and what kind of a, a career could look like is is really exciting for for myself and as well as the, the team members on our organization. Awesome, man, Mike. It seems like a really worthwhile pursuit. Uh, so, yeah, that was a wonderful episode again of the 3D Pod, and also of Three Degrees. So, uh, if you're a 3D Pod listener, go check out Three Degrees, and vice versa. And uh, we'd love to hear uh, some feedback and some stuff. So, thank you very much for being here today, Mike. Thank you all. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Max. So, thanks for being here as well. As always. And uh, yeah, this is uh, my name is Joris Peels, and I was here today uh, with Maxwell Vogue and uh, Mike Vasquez uh, on a combined episode of the 3D Pod in Three Degrees. So, I hope you really enjoyed it, and uh, thank you so much for listening. Bye bye. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.